All right, with that, let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we are in awe at the magnificence and relentlessness of your grace, Lord. How you have opened the doors for us and how you continually provide for us even though we continuously rebel and forget you. Father, we are lost without you. Thank you for your word that gives us guidance today. I pray, Lord, as we continue our study on your first believers, on the first church, Lord, that you can guide us and give us illumination by your Holy Spirit that we may see how you have worked in the lives of your people from the beginning and until now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, couldn't you believe it? It's already the year 2022. I don't know about you guys, but the last couple of years have really flown by fast for me, right? They just come and gone. And there are definitely things that I wish I had more time for last year. And I'm sure a lot of us have in mind some goals that we have for ourselves next year. Maybe we want to lose a bit of weight, be a little more productive, earn a little more money, you know, the usual you might even have some spiritual sounding goals like praying more consistently and reading through the Bible, like the whole Bible this year, you know, which are all well and good. I have some of those goals myself. But there is one New Year's resolution that I find myself tending to neglect. And it's an important one for me as a minister particularly, but really also for Christians generally. And that is the resolution to be preaching the gospel more intentionally in every situation God has placed me in. Right, how many of you guys have had this resolution on your list this year? And I wouldn't blame you if you don't. Maybe the reason is partly that the church perhaps haven't been proactive enough and intentional enough in our efforts to encourage evangelism. But also, at least I've found, those of us who believe in Reformed theology might be unknowingly led to laziness or disinterest in evangelism because of our belief in the sovereignty of God. Like, if God is absolutely sovereign, if God is really in control of everything, if God is going to save who he's going to save, no matter what anyone does anyway, what's the point? Why should we go out of our way and sacrifice our precious time and effort to try telling people about Jesus? So today, we'll be continuing on our series in the book of Acts, and we will see that the greatest and clearest advocate of God's absolute sovereignty, the Apostle Paul, still known here by his Hebrew name Saul, from the moment he converted, immediately made the proclamation of the gospel a priority. A couple of weeks ago, we studied the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, and this week, we'll be studying the aftermath of this event. And by God's grace... I hope by the end of the study, we can see how God worked in the life of Saul so that we too can have this renewed zeal and boldness to proclaim the gospel, the message of the risen Christ. So let us read our text for today, taken from Acts chapter 19b to 30. Take out your Bibles or your holy handphones so you can follow along with me. Acts, 19, Acts 9 verse 19b to 30. This is the word of God. For some days... He was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, 
Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall by lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off into Tarsus. So brothers and sisters, from this narrative, I think we can learn that we too can have the boldness to evangelize because there are three things that we can expect when we've had a genuine encounter with the risen Christ and have now become his disciples. Our three points. When our lives have been changed by the gospel, we will find that, one, that we are already strengthened to evangelize. Two, that we'll be met by suspicion on all sides. And three, yet ultimately, we will experience solidarity from the saints. So one, strength to evangelize. Two, suspicion from all sides. And three, solidarity from the saints. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Okay, so point one. Let's first observe verse 20. What did Paul do after he was strengthened in verse 19? It says that he immediately started preaching the gospel in the synagogues. It's clear here that Luke is trying to point out how radical and sudden the change that happened to Saul was. Just a second ago, he was persecuting the followers of Jesus, sending them to jail or even to be executed. And just in a few days, he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God in the synagogues. Now, how was he able to have the audacity to think that he would be qualified to do such a thing so soon after his conversion? How could he be so bold? Well, if you look at his letters, I think that there are at least two main things that's fueling Saul's engine for evangelism here. First of all, we need to appreciate what Saul had to sacrifice when he first became a follower of Jesus. We need to remember that his entire identity, everything that gave him significant security and value, was wrapped up in being this defender of the Jewish religion. That's why B.C., before Christ, his whole life was dedicated to rooting out this teaching that he deemed to be poisonous, dangerous, and heretical. And Saul's reflection in Philippians 3 really beautifully explores this, right? How Paul was the quintessential Jew. He followed every word, every jot and tittle of the law. And he saw that the work of persecuting Christians was a necessary evil to protect the purity of Israel. If Paul was an avenger, he would be like Captain Israel, like the ultimate Israelites. But now he's met Jesus. And following Jesus now means that not only he will have to bear the embarrassment of admitting he was wrong, 
but he will also have to endure and suffer the persecution that he himself tried to inflict on the church. So to follow Jesus, Paul will have to swallow a big old slice of humble pie and have a proper dose of his own medicine. Yet as it says in Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, friends, after Paul encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, when the scales fell off his eyes after being filled with the Holy Spirit earlier in verse 18, he was not only able to physically see, but the Holy Spirit also healed him of his spiritual blindness. For the first time, Saul now sees things as God sees them, seeing clearly the supremacy, the surpassing worth of the risen Christ. Then the things of the earth seem strangely dim. When Paul surveyed the wondrous cross and understood what Jesus did for him, then the relative meaninglessness of the things he was living for became apparent so as to count all things lost compared to knowing Christ. That God is better than the best thing the world offers. In other words, Paul counted up the cost and indeed found his wealth in the cross. And although perhaps not in such a dramatic and supernatural fashion as with the case of Saul, every single one of us who genuinely believe in Christ would have had at some point had our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit to the beauty of the gospel. All who genuinely follow Christ would have at some point come to an understanding that he is indeed worth following. However, the reason this impulse and urgency to preach the gospel often goes missing is because after we have had this encounter with Christ, we take our eyes off him and go on living as if we never knew him. Instead of treasuring Christ, we go back to finding our significance, security, and value from our wealth, our accomplishments, our career, or whatever else it is that we have convinced ourselves to be most important and will make us happier than God. Functionally treating the cross like some kind of divine insurance policy, right? Like, great, I'm guaranteed a spot in heaven, good to know, let's move on. But this won't work, friends. Because if we live this way, the things of the earth will never grow dim. Because we never can truly treasure Christ and consider these worldly things rubbish this way. Nor will we ever want to because we've invested so much in them. So a proper understanding of who Christ is is what must ultimately fuel our passion for evangelism. Over and over in his letters, Saul reminds us to do this, to put to death the desires of the flesh and to put on Christ. To remember how hopelessly lost we were before Christ and to place our hope in who we are in him now. For only when we are done with our attachment to the world and can truly find satisfaction in Christ, will we see that this opportunity to participate in the work of God, of reaching the whole world and gathering his people as a privilege, right? which is the second thing that we can find in, in Saul's letters, that he truly saw God's decision in his infinite wisdom to allow him to participate in this work 
as a privilege and not as some legalistic requirement that's a burden to him. I think if you read Romans 10, that this is the most beautiful expression of this sentiment. When after thoroughly explaining the universal need for a Savior and after demonstrating that because of what Christ has done, salvation is available universally, he says in verse 14 to 15, how will then they call on him whom they, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not ever heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, friends, this scripture demonstrates that Saul realizes that participating in the gospel work is both the paramount priority and the highest honor. Priority because in sin, we are all on our way to hell, if not for the gospel. And an honor because God, in his infinite wisdom, would use limited and flawed humans as instruments of his greatest work, instruments of his grace. So if we really believe this, how can we not be compelled to preach the gospel and share to the world what Christ has done? Well, one might say, I'm just not built like Paul, right? He had a whole lifetime of studying the scriptures, and he had like the best testimony ever. I don't know as much as Paul does, nor have I experienced anything mystical like him. And you'd be right, because Paul, I mean, God did use Saul's extensive knowledge of the Bible to give us some of the clearest and profound presentations of the gospel ever written. But Saul's mission was never to show off how much he knows, nor was it ever to boast about how supernatural and out of this world his experiences were. But as 1 Corinthians 2 says, I proclaim to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. The understanding that Jesus is the Son of God and He has freed us from our sin alone is sufficient to give us the confidence to preach the gospel accurately and effectively. In fact, do you know who it is that was the first person that Jesus Himself commissioned to share the good news in the Bible? It wasn't the disciples, as you would expect, but it was the demon-possessed guy in Luke 8 who had his demons exercised into some pigs. This guy had been a Christian for a second and received zero theological training. But Jesus himself declared that he was qualified to go home and declare how much God had done for him. Let us not take that for granted. So brothers and sisters, if we've truly been saved, if we truly confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the grave, we have no excuses. We have every reason to do it and knowing what Jesus had done for us is enough to give us the confidence to tell people about him. However, this doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Because if we do get around to doing it, we will put ourselves under the scrutiny of the world and there will be challenges as Paul experienced, which is point two, suspicions on all sides. Let's look at the responses that people had to Paul. We saw in verse 21 that everyone who heard him became amazed at this radical turnaround that he experienced. Right? Saul would be the last person they could have expected to be preaching the gospel. And this radical change happened so suddenly that it was really hard to make sense of it. 
And before, in the book of Acts, whenever this amazement at the preaching of the gospel would happen, Luke points out that many believed. And though our text does say that Saul did have some disciples, so there at least were some who believed, this wasn't the emphasis here. The success of the ministry wasn't Luke's point. Rather, that after a while, as a result of this preaching, Saul the persecutor became Paul the persecuted. We see in verse 22-23, Saul confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ, communicating that Saul was successful in showing the Jews in Damascus, based on their own scriptures and their own assumptions, that Jesus was truly the Son of God, to the point that they could not refute him. And the Jews did not respond gratefully to the truth that he dropped on them, nor did he believe him, but they ended up hating him and wanting to kill him. These are the same Jews who probably welcomed him as a hero when he arrived at Damascus. They used to be his biggest fans, but when it became clear, they no longer agreed with him. They quickly turned on him and saw him as a threat. The same thing happened again in verse 29. When Paul was disputing against the Hellenists in Jerusalem, and by the way, Paul was a Hellenist. Right? He was from Tarsus, a Hellenistic city in modern-day Turkey. So immediately after his conversion, Saul's biggest supporters and the culture that he came from rejected him and turned on him and even tried to kill him. Now, in most of our Jakartan context, we would probably not experience anywhere near as much suspicion and opposition as Saul did, right? In all likelihood, there's no one going to be trying to kill you or even openly expressing dislike of you when you try to share your faith, especially in light of the fact that Indonesians are especially skilled at pretending to be cool with you when they actually don't like you. Yet nonetheless, right, if we try to live out the unique calling Christ has placed in our lives, if we are explicit about our faith, we will inevitably experience some sort of rejection and displacement in our culture. Because there will come a point where there will be a conflict between the way followers of Jesus are meant to live and how our peers and our cultures believe one should live. Although, by God's common grace, we might cosmetically agree on some common moral values, at its core, the world will still seek to derive its significance, security, and value apart from God. Thus, this conclusion that Saul got to, that whatever it is that we're living for are ultimately rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, is deeply foolish and offensive to the sinful human heart. And if we had not been humbled by the Holy Spirit ourselves as Saul was, we too would be hostile to the gospel. So when we do encounter these points of tension our culture has and the truth we hold to as Christians, what we might be tempted to do is compromise. Right? We would happily label ourselves as Christian, put on the Christian mantle and say Christian-sounding things, maybe put a Bible verse on your Instagram bio, Yet ultimately, we get nervous about saying that Jesus is the only way and are intimidated into calling sinners to repentance. So instead, we try to sell and present Christianity in a way that is more palatable to the world. And this can happen in a church-wide scale, where our services become more about entertainment than worship, where our sermons become more about self-improvement and motivation than repentance, where theology becomes less about understanding who God has said, but 
is seen now to be somehow this hindrance to unity and really loving people. And it can also happen on a personal level when our faith just becomes a thing that we think about and do on Sunday. When sharing our faith never crosses our minds because it's just too hard and too much effort. So we live throughout the week functionally as atheists, just like everyone else, indistinguishable in word and deed to those who never knew Christ. Right? Not that we have to smack people on the head with the Bible and vomit theology on them. Right? A great deal of prayer and wisdom needs to go into our interactions with the world. Though the gospel will inevitably confront and challenge the values of our culture, we don't go out with the intention of being offensive. Rather, the hope is that we can winsomely and faithfully offer to all the salvation that the gospel really has available for them. The last thing we want is for our rudeness, insensitivities, and sinfulness to distract people from the grace that the gospel message actually offers in Christ. Friends, as we saw though, Paul never compromised and he was never intimidated against preaching the gospel despite the suspicion and hostility he faced. And this is no doubt partly because Saul completely understands the feelings of their haters. He was one of them not long ago. Saul heard about what happened in Jerusalem. He heard Stephen and, in all likelihood, all the other apostles preach. And like them, before the risen Christ himself came to him, he wanted to kill the followers of Christ too. Yet the Holy Spirit was still able to change his heart. So his own testimony made him understand that even the hardest heart can be softened and renewed by the gospel. You see, through his own experience, Saul understood the dynamics of gospel change. That ultimately, it is the work of the Holy Spirit which convinces someone to repent and follow Jesus. Saul himself heard a legit Holy Spirit-inspired preaching that made it into the Bible, but then ended up killing the preacher. So he understood that it's not ultimately up to him how many people come to Christ at a given time. That it is not ultimately under his control what the results of his ministry would be. Therefore, the work of an evangelist, the work of preaching the gospel, is not to somehow convince people to follow Jesus. What we're doing is pointing to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and it is Jesus who changes lives. So what really evangelism does is that it filters out the people in whom God was already working. Then, if it seems like God is truly working in them, we invite them to be loved and discipled in the community of believers. So no preacher, no minister, no human can really take credit for leading people to Christ. Our eloquence, our education, our effort was not the reason why our evangelism was effective, but it has always been because of the omnipotent Spirit of God who is already working in the sinner's heart. And we are simply privileged to be His chosen instruments and to witness this firsthand. This is a comforting truth, friends. Because doing something without knowing we're doing it right, or even if it's working, is really frustrating. And we can be waiting for a really long time in ministry before we see the fruits of our labor, before we see a single person come to faith. The legendary missionary, William Carey, had to wait seven years before he baptized a single convert. But if Jesus was truly the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit is truly at work 
None of our ministry, no matter how long it takes, is in vain. No time has been wasted, and it had always been meaningful. Now, this does not mean that the opposition we face won't bother us, or the challenges that will arise will be any less hard. We are still frail and limited humans. And though we might genuinely believe that we're participating in an eternally meaningful work and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that our hearts are immune to wavering, nor our souls immune to sinking when it gets really hard. But praise be to God that not only He gives us the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, but He has not sent us on this mission solo. But as Paul experienced, the ministry of the gospel was always meant to be done together. Which is point three, solidarity from the saints. Okay, lastly, let's review again what kept on happening to Paul after he became disciple, right? And let's notice the pattern of what kept on happening. In Damascus, remember that Paul was converted there but was blinded in the process. Then God sent Ananias, one of his disciples, and to give him food. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he was understandably a little bit skeptical, a little bit scared at first, but ultimately obeyed God's command to care for him even calling him brother in verse 17. And the result of which was that Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit and was strengthened to do this ministry. Then after a while, the Jews, the ones, uh, the team Paul once played for, ended up wanting to kill him. But the disciples got his back. And they were, ended up, they were the ones who ended up saving him by lowering him in a basket down a window in verse 25. Then it happened again in Jerusalem. We see in verse 26, the gospel community here called the disciples were afraid of him. Understandably so, I might add, right? There was likely a lot of trauma in that community because of Saul. He was involved in the capture of murder and murder of Christians in Jerusalem. Very likely that some of the friends and family of the church members there fell victim to this. So God, in verse 27, sent one of his disciples, Barnabas, to vouch for Saul before the apostles. And they accepted him, apparently. But again, eventually, there were other people wanting to kill him. In verse 29, this time the Hellenists, the ones who got Stephen with Paul earlier. But guess who came to the rescue? The Lord, this time by sending the brothers, in verse 30, to get Paul out of there. Do you guys notice the repetition here? As Saul was transitioning into this Christian identity, into this ministry, God provided him a brother, and in fact, a whole community who would love him out of obedience, adopt him as one of their own, and then support him in his ministry. Let's take a moment and not, get, and not let uh, us take for granted how incredible this really is. Right? This would be like if Jews today welcomed a former Nazi in their community or an African-American community accepting a former member of the Ku Klux Klan as a brother. It's absolutely unthinkable. How can a community that has been so flagrantly sinned against be so gracious? And the only answer is because they have already received the ultimate grace from the one we all wrong the most. You see, as Christians, the first thing we must remember is that none of us deserve this relationship with God. None of us deserve His grace. Although God has already been good to us, although God has provided for us 
everything that we're able to enjoy and able to do, we continue to rebel against him and refuse to give him the honor he is due. And when God sent his son to save us, we rejected him too and nailed him on the cross. Yet friends, this was the very purpose for which Jesus came, to show us the greatest expression of God's love. There is no greater expression of love than this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, while we were still in rebellion, Jesus died for us. He showed us solidarity before we were on his side. Therefore, the fitting response to that is by likewise showing this kind of grace and solidarity to any sinner who comes into our fellowship and want to follow Jesus. So every single person, right, no matter what we've done, no matter our background, no matter what it might be we, str- we are struggling with right now, we should be able to walk into church and into the community and expect grace. Not the skepticism, judgment, and rejection which has been experienced by many and can really be found anywhere in the world. Because when we go to church, we look for Jesus, and when we find him, we will also necessarily find grace. And this grace is meant to be experienced and enjoyed together as a community, shared between all of us as a family. And the churches in Jerusalem and the churches in Damascus' effort worked out, didn't it? Because the gospel of the community didn't let Saul suffer the same fate which he subjected so many in their community to. And because of this, God turned Saul into the Apostle Paul, the most prolific missionary and theologian in the history of the church. Now, we probably don't have the next Paul in our midst in all likelihood. But there is no telling what good for the kingdom of God can be done by those who we least expect it. Therefore, we must strive to be a community who is willing to call, welcome, embrace, disciple, and if necessary, reconcile with all who want to repent and be followers of Christ. So this year, friends, let us challenge ourselves to be more proactive and intentional in our efforts to point people to Jesus. Because if our hearts really have been transformed by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need to do this effectively. And although we might experience some rejection or even feel intimidated and threatened by the world, we should not be scared. We cannot be intimidated because we are in this together. The Lord has given us a whole community of family who are called to encourage and edify each other to do this work. And this will be a hard task. But indeed, this amazing love God gives us demands our soul, our lives, and our all. But if God is for us, then who can be against us? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your grace, Lord. We are grateful that you have let the scales fall from our eyes that we may see your glory and your beauty. Father, if there are those of us here who have yet to see your glory, Father, I pray that you can send your Holy Spirit to them and make them realize just how wonderful you are. For for those of us here whom you have moved and you have adopted as children, Lord, give us the boldness 
and the enthusiasm to share what you have done to us, to all who you have called to listen. Give us this boldness, Lord, and give us the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and each other that we may know we're not doing this alone, that this work is truly pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.